Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast by Jim Power and Chris Johns that looks at the major political, economic and financial developments around the world from a uniquely Anglo-Irish perspective. All our podcasts can be found at our Substack site and all good podcast platforms. As usual, a packed agenda. Um, the IMF spring meetings starting in Washington at the moment. Um, and the early mood music we're getting out of that is pretty negative. So I think a discussion on the IMF's global outlook and indeed the outlook that's been produced by others at the moment, including the World Trade Organization, is worth a mention. Um, I know you want to revisit AI and chat GPT and so on. Uh, you've been doing further exploration in your spare time. I just envy the amount of spare time you have. I wish I had that sort of time to engage in that sort of research, but I'm um, looking forward to hear what you have to say about that. And I just want to update on a few statistical releases that I think are kind of interesting relating to Ireland. Um, we have just got the industrial production numbers for February. And in the year to February, manufacturing output was up by 25.6%. Really, really strong stuff when you get that sort of growth rate. Uh, but within that, the dual economy story continues to emerge. The modern sector expanded by 26.4%. So that's dominated by um, the IT manufacturing that we do here and also the chemical and pharmaceutical sector particularly, whereas the traditional side of the economy 
output is just up by 1.8%. Um, and the other point I would make is that in the three months to the end of February, there was a decline of 7.3% compared to the previous quarter. And I know quarter on quarter changes um, are always difficult to interpret, but it does indicate some softening. But the manufacturing or the, the multinational part of the economy continuing to grow strongly. Um, the revenue commissioners have just published some data on the local property tax, which, unlike water charges, never turned out to be anything like as controversial as might have been the case. Um, in the first quarter of this year, the revenue commissioners collected 314 million euro, um, and that represents a 90% compliance rate um, out of a population of about 1.7 million properties. And just 150,000 letters have been sent out by revenue reminding people that there is a property tax liability due. And I, I think what this demonstrates is, number one, you know, there has been um, remarkably little opposition to property tax, really. Okay, parties like Sinn Féin and People Before Profit who talk about wealth taxes and the desirability of wealth taxes, they are opposed to property tax, which I, I find utterly bizarre. But the other point to note here is that, um, and I guess there's a behavioural economics piece at play here, uh, the government abjectly failed to introduce or collect water charges, massive political opposition, and it died a death very, very quickly. Whereas the local property tax collection was handed to the revenue commissioners. And the impact that a letter or a notice from the revenue commissioners has on one's behaviour is pretty stark. So it, it just shows you uh, the moral of the story he, here is if you want to collect anything, get the revenue commissioners involved and you're guaranteed a high level of success. The final piece of data I'd just like to allude to was uh, this week, the Central Statistics Office published um, a new report. Well, I, I think it's a new report. I hadn't seen it before, actually. It's called the Characteristics of Residential Property Purchasers. Okay, and it's basically looking at and analyzing the mortgage and non-mortgage transactions that occurred in the residential property market during 2021. And a few interesting statistics hop out of that. One is that the proportion of dwellings purchased with a mortgage was 63%. Um, that peaked at 65% in 2019. So a little bit of a decline, but it just shows you there are still a hell of a lot of cash buyers in the um, residential property market. And when you look at the level of savings, 149.4 billion at the end of January, you do realize, you know, there's still a lot of cash sitting out there that uh, will find its way into the residential property market. Um, the other point to note is, and this I think ties back to many demographic discussions we've had over a number of podcasts, um, the buyers with a mortgage had a median age of 37, okay? And the buyers without a mortgage or the cash buyers had a median age of 47. So it, it just shows you again uh, the pressure on that younger 
age segment of the uh, the population. So I just think um, it's, it's an interesting report. Some interesting statistics jump out. Uh, there is a lot more detail in there. And if we had a couple of hours, I'd love to take you through all of the statistics, uh, but I'm not going to do that. You'll be glad to hear. Um, moving on to the whole global economic picture and what's going on there. Um, the IMF spring meeting starting in Washington and the move music coming out is pretty downbeat, is pretty negative. Uh, the World Trade Organization has just published some forecasts for global trade. Um, in 2022, global trade expanded by 2.7%, which in historical contexts is a relatively subdued weak level of global trade growth and that shouldn't surprise us because you know we've seen um, massive disruption to global supply chains and global trade over the last few years so no surprises there but looking at 2023 um, the WTA was forecasting a further deceleration in the growth rate from 2.7% last year to 1.7% this year um, the one thing I would say about that is Okay, well, two things, actually. Uh, one, it's it would be a pretty weak, very weak outcome, in fact. Uh, but on the other hand, it is, pardon the pun, um, it's an upward revision from the 1% that the WTO was predicting back on in October. And the reason given for the slight upgrade to the forecast is that global supply chain pressures continue to ease and that is freeing up trade. But I just think there are so many other things happening on the global trade front at the moment that, you know, you can't just put everything down to global supply chains. There's economic weakness, there's growing nationalism, um, Brexit, for example, the impact that is having on trade, lots of different stuff happening around the place. And of course, a man who was instrumental in a lot of this over uh, the last few years um, is a man that was arrested in New York during the week, um, the real deglobalization hero, Donald Trump. But Chris, going back to Washington, D.C. and the IMF meetings, uh, you've been taking a look at the early mood music emerging from that august gathering. Yeah, it's IMF season. That We get two um, big bites of this particular apple um, each year. Uh, the IMF produces twice a year, big, big set of forecast analysis and looks at various topics. We expect the full publication over the next few days for this uh, series of forecasts, but they have been dropping some hints in a couple of speeches and talks by the head of the IMF in particular about their outlook. They're echoing the remarks that you noted there from the World Trade Organization, actually, that uh, the IMF have said today that global growth over the next five years will be the weakest five-year period in over three decades. Um, that's quite something. An ex-IMF chief economist, a guy called Raghuram Rajan, who, who was one of the few people that correctly foresaw the 2008 fin great financial crisis, has also been speaking not at the IMF today, but I think he was in Glasgow of all places. And he is saying that banks in particular, just like last time, although maybe for slightly different reasons, are heading for more trouble that this sense that we and in particular the financial markets have got that the banking crisis caused by SVB and Credit Suisse is over. Um, he's saying that's wrong, that we, the rises in interest rates that we've seen over the last while 
are going to produce are producing stresses and strains in the financial system that have yet to be revealed. They're particularly worried about shadow banks, which are the bits of the financial system that, as the name suggests, aren't banks. And that can range from hedge funds to pension funds to all sorts of weird and wonderful organizations. And the expectation is that there is trouble coming from one or more of those sectors that all of these rises in interest rates either have or will break something. And one of the interesting things that's been happening there is that the markets are moving very quickly to think about lower interest rates, not higher interest rates, partly in response to these fears over the financial system. Things like bond yields and shorter term interest rates have been falling quite dramatically over the last while. The the rise in energy prices that we saw in the res- as a result of OPEC's decision to cut production hasn't produced the big spike in energy prices that everybody was worried about. And that fall in interest rates, fall in bond yields has been mentioned by a Federal Reserve governor today as a reason why he doesn't expect uh, further financial trouble. But it, it, it on balance, it all looks rather gloomy. Goldman Sachs today... And the big uh, global investment bank says that first quarter earnings for U.S. companies listed on the stock market, earnings season starts next week. This is where companies in the S&P 500 start reporting their earnings for the quarter just ended. And Goldman's are forecasting a pretty poor performance on profits from companies, mirroring that economic gloom, I guess. And they're saying that they think Earnings will fall in the first quarter by 7% compared to the first quarter of 2022. So so that's not good. In some ways, that's a surprise, I suppose, that equity markets have held up quite so well. But to complete the gloom, I came across something from Bloomberg today. They have a model that purports to calculate the probability of a recession over the short and medium term. And according to what I read, and it really caused me to sort of blink and think, blimey, is this right? But yes, the the model is saying that by the middle of the year, there is a 97% chance of a recession starting in the States. And over the next 12 months, this Bloomberg model suggests that there is a 100% chance of a recession developing. Those frankly, to me, don't look right. I don't know any model that could be uh, produce numbers like that with such degrees of certainty. I would have thought that any forecasting model, given everything that you and I have said about forecasting, Jim, and everything that we know about forecasting, um, it's unusual uh, for a forecasting model to be that that definitive. So I would treat those, those forecasts with uh, a lot of caution, but it, it really just encapsulates the gloom that I think is out there with respect to the economic outlook. You can see it in all sorts of different ways. As I say, it's US company profits, other company profits, the actual growth numbers that we're seeing, the rejoicing that we're seeing in the UK when we just about here avoid recession. Flatlining is now seen as the new growth. Germany has just avoided recession as well, just about, and that too has been a cause for celebration. But it's a very, very downbeat global outlook. And for the small economy that is Ireland, you you really, you guys really stand out, don't you, Jim, as being still a high growth area. How worried are you about what this means for Ireland? Yeah, Chris, before I answer that question, I'm I'm a little bit bewildered by all of this, to be honest. Um, I look at the data that's coming out, particularly out of Europe, um, industrial production out of Germany, pretty strong. The purchasing managers indices, particularly for services, are holding up pretty well. So there's not a lot in the official data 
that's supportive of the um, sort of very negative prognosis from people like Bloomberg and the IMF that you've just described. But indeed, if, 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 if okay, I suppose there is the issue here that interest rates, there is a lagged effect, you know, it takes fully six to nine months for an interest rate move to fully work its way through the economy. So with the, the amount of monetary tightening we've seen, you know, clearly a lot of people are looking at the implications of that over the coming six months or so. I presume that's driving a lot of the negative sentiment out there. And of course, the impact that sort of rate tightening has in the banking industry has been highlighted very clearly over the last two or three months. But yet, the data is holding up pretty well. Philip Lane, the chief economist in the European Central Bank, has said today that basically the European Central Bank is now on data watch and that the decision that will be taken in May on rates will be heavily dependent on the economic data the ECB sees between now and then. But his bias is still towards a further tightening of interest rates. Uh, and that really seems totally inconsistent with that sort of market sentiment that you described there. So it's a it's a confused picture. But to, to me, the biggest source of concern is the banking sector. You know, we've spoken about the three banks in the States and Credit Suisse that have gone into serious difficulty in recent weeks numerous times. And we, 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 we've made the point that those banks, you can look at each one in isolation and say there are unique reasons why that bank is in trouble. And of course, the problem is how many more banks are out there uh, that could have their unique problems. So to me, that's really the area to watch more than anything else, the implications of that. Uh, I was doing a presentation earlier this week and I was talking about the European Central Bank's interest rate outlook and 3.5% rates at the moment. I said that, that the risk certainly is that we'll get another half percent at least in this cycle. I was then asked the question, when are ECB rates going to start coming down? And I just answered that I wouldn't even be thinking about ECB interest rates coming down anytime soon. But then you get news like that from Bloomberg and the IMF over the last 24 hours, and you start to revise your view a little bit again. Chris, I'm confused. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The summary of all of that, Jim, is the recession seems to be in every forecast or most forecasts. It's every, it's something that everybody talks about. Every narrative about the economy, particularly the US economy, and therefore everybody else's economy, the recession word is used. Will there be one? Yes, there probably will be, seems to be the narrative. And yet we don't see it in any of the numbers. It's just not there in the data on either side of the Atlantic or indeed 
in most major developed and lesser developed economies. So, mm. yeah, we've got a recession narrative, but we ain't got a recession number. Is that the best yeah. way of summarizing that? that? That's the best way of summarizing it. A lot of those, you know, I, I watch one forecasting agency in the United Kingdom very, very closely, and they've been really negative on the UK and the euro area for quite some time, talking about recession. But with every economic statistic that's released, their accompanying commentary is, and German industrial production recently been a case in point this number was strong stronger than we expected uh, but the recession is still around the corner they just keep pushing out the timing of that so th there's an amazing amount of confusion but you asked me a question that i haven't yet answered and that is about the irish economic situation we've just moved into the second quarter of the year most economic indicators are still very strong we spoke earlier in well, last week about exchequer returns and the extreme buoyancy of income tax and corporation tax. I've described earlier in this podcast the, re the, the most recent industrial production numbers, which, although imbalanced, are still broadly strong. Consumer spending is holding up reasonably well. And the export side of the economy is in general doing reasonably well, although some sectors are starting to experience stresses. But in an overall sense, the Irish economy is still showing a significant level of momentum. I still talk to employers out there and their biggest challenge is the shortage of labour and the upper pressure on wages. And, and, and that encapsulates, I think, Ireland very well at the moment. It is still a strong story, but I would sort of have a view that GNI star, this is the modified measure of economic activity. Last year, that expanded by about 5.2% compared to 12% growth in GDP. This year, I'd be looking at growth of sort of 2 to 3% in that. So it would represent a deceleration in economic growth, but nevertheless, some economic growth still coming through in the economy. And, and I think that would represent a very positive outcome for Ireland, given all of those global and external headwinds. A question I'd like to put to you, and one thing that would really worry me about that IMF view about growth over the next five years being the lowest in three decades. Mm -hmm. The political implications of that, I mean, because you have spoken eloquently so many times about the, impl the impact that the lack of growth in the UK has had, well, to society and to the political system. If you had five years of very subdued growth in the global economy, the States, in Europe, what sort of political dislocation will that give rise to? That, I think that's the question. Well, I think you've sort of answered it in the way that you posed the question, Jim. Um, and I would say welcome to my world, the world of the UK. I wrote something last weekend about the culture wars that rage in the UK. And we, we know all about them. We've talked about them, Brexit and populism and all those other themes. And there was an interesting article, frankly, what I consider to be a ridiculous article written by a UK academic publicizing a book that he's written and I paraphrase slightly and I simplify greatly that he's essentially saying that a new elite has taken over in the UK, uh, one that's essentially a graduate class of people all living in London and the southeast who uh, don't reflect the values of the country at large. And it's all this populist culture war nonsense and poisonous politics, if you ask me. And the one thing that he didn't do in trying to describe the current state of the UK was to say that any of its problems are caused by the lack of economic growth. 
And I would assert and have asserted many times, as you have suggested, that the reason, the main reason why our politics here are so poisonous is that we're fighting over a pie, an economy that isn't growing. So this is, uh, these are all essentially can be traced back, all these problems can be traced back to fights over the cake that isn't growing. And I think that if you have a world that doesn't grow, that's the kind of politics to which lack of economic growth gives rise to. The reason why you've got poisonous politics in countries like America that has grown over the last few years is that that growth has accrued to too small a slice of the population. But if you then start to posit the idea that you've, you've got inequality and no growth so that uh, even the top slice don't get that much either um, and there isn't any growth to fight over, that's just when it, it all the poisonous politics that we've seen just gets much, much worse. So from a socio-political point of view, you really have to hope that the IMF is wrong. Yeah, you, you certainly do. Uh, but I, I think central bankers need to be really mindful of the role that they will play in this whole equation. Because if they continue to tighten monetary policy, you know, it's going to become a self-fulfilling expectation. But if you're a central banker sitting, analysing this at the moment, the political implications, well, the economic and political implications of tightening monetary policy too much, but you balance that against the possibility that inflation could remain at elevated levels and that poses its own political challenges. So central bankers are really between a rock and a hard place at the moment in terms of policy. And it will be really, really interesting to see over the next couple of meetings from the Federal Reserve, particularly from the European Central Bank, what sort of slant they're going to take on all of this. But I do have a source of optimism for you on growth, Jim, and that's AI. And this is something that I'm going to be talking about ad nauseum, I suspect forever now, but I am going to mention it today. And I will tell you and all listeners, this is something that I'm going to talk about a lot going forward. Not in every podcast. but Chris, in, in I, I, I grew up on a farm and AI had a totally different meaning in my youth. Enlighten me. Artificial insemination for cows. Moving swiftly on. <laughs> Artificial intelligence. Everybody, everybody, or at least most people, have heard of ChatGPT3. Um, this is the chatbot that a company called OpenAI introduced to great fanfare, quickly ran to over 100 million users worldwide. It was introduced at the back end of last year. We now have ChatGPT4, which is not widely available. You have to pay for it if, if you want it, and it's available in various guises. This has produced an outpouring, an avalanche. I don't know what uh, way to, how to describe the, the sheer volume of pieces that have been written, podcasts, all the different ways in which people communicate their thoughts about artificial intelligence. And if you're anything like me, Jim, you end up totally confused if you do a lot of reading around this, which which I have done. So I'm going to summarize today um, a few things, a few r almost randomly selected things about all of this that, that I've noticed that I think are of, of great interest. Firstly, the source of optimism that, that I mentioned that really is one reason why I think the IMF could be wrong. And that is that this AI thing, if it's used properly, if it's adopted properly, and if it grows in a particular way, develops in a particular way, could be massively growth enhancing, could be a real boost for global productivity, could add trillions to the global economy. It could be, it might be that big. It might not be. And there are lots of reasons to think that, that there are missteps along the way that we could take. Essentially, there are different 
takes on all of this. You might remember there was a Nobel Prize winning economist called Robert Solow, who back in the day noticed that uh, a similar discussion was being had about the advent of computers. And he said, I, I, I can see computers everywhere, he said. This was quite some decades ago, except in the productivity statistics. And it was noted that although computers had been around for a long period of time, they hadn't added to economic growth. And it really wasn't until the 1990s that the technology revolution on the back of semiconductors and the you know computers be, uh, becoming miniaturized and everybody getting a PC on their desk, that was what it took a long time for computers to show up in the productivity data. And a lot of people think it will be the same this time around for AI. Uh, it'll take so long for it to be adopted and the effects will take a long time to come through. It seems to depend at the moment on which way we go with how we use it. If we use it to just uh, replace people, to take routine tasks and automate them, and this particular one, of course, is all the way up the value chain. It used to be for unskilled labor that we would use robots. Now we're going to be using it for accountants, lawyers, doctors, and anybody that writes, uh, all sorts of different professions. Maybe as many as 80% of jobs are threatened by this, according to some estimates. I say estimates, I think they're just guesses. I don't think anybody knows, actually. But th this critical distinction, are we going to use this stuff simply to make us do what we do already a little bit quicker with fewer bodies? If that happens, the growth effects won't be felt for a long period of time, if ever. Um, they, they will be marginal, uh, certainly in the early years. And all of the talk will be about the threat to jobs. The big question is whether we go down the other route or the extent to which we go down this other path, which is whether AI will enable us to do brand new things. Now, it's in the nature of brand new things that it's quite difficult to imagine what they're going to be in advance. But brand new is, for example, what we're doing at the moment. Now, you might argue, Jim, um, and I know you wouldn't, but some people might, that podcasting and all of this technology that we're using to do this, we're sitting in different countries, we're using amazing tech to do something that was never done before. We could measure its value add in terms of the revenues we generate from it. We could uh, use it in terms of the enhancement that we bring to other people's lives. There are all sorts of different ways we could measure this. But nobody a good few years ago could have imagined that you and I would be spending our time doing this. Will AI lead to similar brand new things? And I think that it's an optimistic take um, would be that it will without knowing what these new things are going to be. The speed with which this is moving encouraged me to think that it will lead to new things and therefore it will be very quickly growth enhancing. The one way in which I think this will not be growth enhancing is if the whole AI thing is controlled by just two or three giant tech companies, one or two tech billionaires actually remain in charge of this. If this is monopolized, by a relatively few people or institutions, then I think it could go off in all sorts of horrible ways, not just the ways that I've mentioned. There are all sorts of security issues. There are all sorts of personal data issues. There are all sorts of things that one could worry about if um, Mr. Evil is in charge of all of this stuff. But the latest development suggests to me that this is starting to disseminate and they could these tech bros who are in charge of it at the moment could very quickly lose control of it. I refer to one development in recent days from Stanford University in the United States who've developed something called Alpaca AI. Now, Alpaca AI is not unlike ChatGPT and it is essentially an open source 
sort of copy of ChatGPT that these uh, people at Stanford had developed for $600. And so if you can do it that cheap, if you can do it that quick, then I think people are going to be developing this on their own. There's a great Substack site. Apart from our own gym, there is at least one other great Substack site um, called What Did OpenAI Do This Week? And it's very, very long. So this is the first thing I would say about this is that if you want to look at the developments of how AI is moving, the, the old internet cliche or uh, Silicon Valley cliche is move fast and break things. AI is moving at lightning speed and it's breaking all sorts of things. The latest edition of this Substack newsletter, um, What Did Open AI This Week, starts with the way in which artificial intelligence, ChatGPT in particular, is being used for various businesses. And it runs through Expedia, Fiscal Note, Instacart, Kayak, Klarna, Milo Family, Open Table, the restaurant booking site, Shop, Speak, Wolfram, Zapier, a way in which they're plugging in ChatGPT3 into their business. And then there's a whole list of things that have been happening just over the last while, including things like funding, the different companies that are raising money to do all sorts of interesting, exciting things. There's a great article linked to that um, is from some MIT economists that talk about this point that I raise about whether or not it's just going to be doing old stuff quicker or whether we're going to be doing new stuff. There's a much longer discussion of that. There's discussion of the ways in which all these GPT things are being used to uh, do computer coding in, in ways that are really, really interesting and exciting. All of that said, I mean, I know I sound really excited and I am about this. The one, one caveat I have about it is the way in which I use it personally. And th this stuff is interesting in so many different ways, not least in the way it gets things wrong. I've been using Google's equivalent of ChatGPT, its artificial intelligence system called BARD over the last few days. And I have been absolutely stunned by how wrong it gets things. I've asked it to do various things, not least construct a portfolio of stocks, of equities that it will predict will do very, very well. In a dialogue with this chatbot, I asked it why it had chosen a particular list of stocks that looked sensible. I had a suspicion about why it had done it, because these were stocks that have actually done well. So it looked like a classic momentum play, things that it was choosing stocks that it thought would do well on the basis of things that um, have done well. And to cut a long story short, we went through things like return on assets, price earnings ratios, dividend yields, and all the rest of it. And then I had an argument with it because he kept telling me that um, the reason why it had chosen Amazon as one of its picks was because of its dividend yield. Amazon, of course, doesn't pay a dividend. And lots of different things like that that it just simply got wrong. Another thing I, it got wrong was uh, going back to our discussion of the UK's political snake pit. I had a discussion with it about uh, the UK uh, Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak. And um, it reckoned in this conversation I was having with Bard that Rishi Sunak had beaten Liz Truss in last September's prime ministerial runoff contest, which, of course, was completely the wrong way around. Liz Truss won that particular one. And um, it was quite defensive of its position. So it gets things spectacularly wrong. So I think that um, we're not there yet. We're not going to have all of our 
human functionality replaced, but everybody is using this. And I think we've all got examples of, of people that we know in business, in academia, in their working lives that use this. I read a Bloomberg summary today of what's been happening in markets and the long article about various things, including all that stuff about the IMF and all the other things that we talk about in terms of daily updates. The last line in this article was that this story was produced with help from Bloomberg AI. So it's already being used in anger. And every week there's going to be something to talk about, Jim. I hope that uh, I haven't gone on too much about this, but I do think it is very, very exciting. Since we have started talking about ChatGPT, I'm struck by publications like the Harvard Business Review, The Economist, The Financial Times. They are all really latching onto it, not because of what we said, but it is just amazing how quickly this has become um, the most significant topic of conversation. It just shows how quickly it is advancing. I, I take your point about the uh, BARD, what the information that's been giving, given you, and it just shows that the human intervention here will be needed at all times to fact check, I guess, what's coming out of it. But I, in, in academia, you would obviously worry about the impact this has on students doing assignments and so on. And I know software is being developed in the United States to try and check for AI plagiarism as such. But I, I, I still think the positives far outweigh the negatives. And some stuff that I've tried on it comes out with a lot of very basic information and states facts without pro providing the evidence. So that then suggests to me I should go away and, and use this suggestion from the program as something to go away and research. So I think as a research tool, it's going to be really, really powerful and interesting. But I don't see the human interaction actually diminishing very much in this whole thing. I think at the end of the day, the human brain will win. So perhaps um, we should conclude on that note, promising to come back to all of this, I think repeatedly, Jim, because it is moving so fast. It is going to affect all of our lives. But the good news is that I think we should probably not say that that, that means that podcasting uh, for Jim Power and Chris Johns is all over, that we should probably do another one at least. We should do at least one more, Chris. Yeah. Cheers, Jim. You have a lovely weekend. And you likewise. Good to talk. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found on our Substack account www.cjpeconomics.substack.com or on podcast platforms such as Apple and Spotify. If you would like to listen to the podcast free of advertisements, you can sign up to our Substack account. Comments and feedback are much appreciated. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.